6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1. One's godly behavior is a warranty deed for himself that Jesus Christ has cleansed him from his past sins and therefore that he was, in fact, called and elected by God. Your justification before the throne of God is 100% paid for by Jesus Christ. When you accept Christ, you are declared not guilty. You haven't changed yet. But one of the ways you know something's happened is you begin to see that confirmed or evidenced by changes that begin. And that's your warranty deed. That's your proof that it happened, if you will. And uh, the Babylonian is also rendered secure in Hebrews, the word guaranteed in Romans 4, firm in 2 Corinthians 1, courage, confidence, in force. It's a confirming kind of term. Make your, election, your calling an election, sure. Now, calling an election is here, and it's the backward. It's actually your election occurs before your calling, but the point is calling refers to God's efficacious work in salvation. Once you're saved, he's going to, there'll be a calling evident. Because you have been elected. That's God's work of choosing some sinners by His grace, not because of their merit, uh, to be saved. God's election and calling. And uh, theologically, it would be sounder if it was in the right order there. Election, of course, precedes calling. A believer shows by his godly life and his growth in the virtues mentioned before that he is one of God's chosen. That's the way you can demonstrate, you can confirm, you can evidence your calling and your election and your calling. And there, if, if you do that, these things, you shall never fall. Don't misunderstand this. This doesn't mean you can lose your salvation. Many people don't understand that. The word fall here actually is the word stumble. Uh, and uh, this does not suggest that a believer loses salvation. For salvation does not depend on your spiritual growth. It's 100% dependent on what Christ completed on the cross in Judea 2,000 years ago. The Greek word for stumble means to trip up or to experience a reversal. Yes, we'll stumble and uh, shake the dust off and keep going. And uh, certainly one who is maturing in Christ will not trip up in a spiritual life as readily as one who is immature or nearsighted. That's really the flavor of these, the passages we just read. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. See, constant victory is the goal. And this is probably in memory of what the Lord had told him when he was publicly reinstated in the place of apostleship at the seaside. Remember, he denied Jesus Christ three times. But in John 21, by the seaside, in his resurrection, resurrected body, Jesus is there and asks, gives him three, three opportunities to, to reconfirm himself. And that's his reinstatement. Never lost his salvation, but he lost his posture as a disciple. The angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter, when he talks about the empty tomb. Because Peter had lost his, his, his uh, 
positioned in a sense by his uh, uh, experience that earlier that evening, and or, or a couple of days that uh, anyway earlier that week. Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things. Peter saying. I'm not going to be negligent to put you always in remembrance of things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. In other words, even though you've heard these things before, I'm going to keep reminding you. So when you hear one of my tapes for the 110th time, understand I'm just being scriptural. <laughs> I'm not going to be negligent to put you always in remembrance. See, Peter understood our need for repeated remindings, if you will. Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this tabernacle even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. And that, of course, is an allusion to John 21, where Jesus indicated that he, there was a destiny for him. He knew it was coming. And he probably, like Paul, said words to the effect to be with Christ, which is far better. Paul said, I'm a twixt between two, having a desire to depart and to be with him. When, a, when, a, when a, a minister or a preacher dies, understand he's getting a reward. He's anxious to be with his Lord. We just had a funeral here last week of a dear, dear brother. who's one of our earliest directors when we first came on, our, on our ministry when we first came up here, Eric Schubert, and he passed away. But he's with the Lord, you see, and he's, he is to be with Christ, which is far better. When a Christian passes away, there should be a party, a celebration, not a moribund funeral or something. You know, it should be upbeat. Peter says, the image of the earthly body being like a tent. See, he's using the term tabernacle, where it really means like tent. When I put off this tent, it's a very temporary covering, so to speak. The image of an earthly body being like a tent. That fits well with Peter's whole theme that he's just a pilgrim. I'm just passing through. And that should be our attitude. We think, Nan and I think, the big, the most missing message in the Christian body today is this whole idea of the kingdom. We should have a kingdom perspective. When we get disturbed by some of the political shenanigans going on in, uh, around the world, uh, hey, that's exactly what the Scripture predicted. Because we're just passing through. We're pilgrims. Our commitment, our allegiance, our focus is a king that's coming. And he is coming on the earth. Not in some fuzzy, fuzzy uh, sense, in a very tangible, specific sense. Peter says, Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. He's pointing to his writings, okay? After my decease. The word there is exodon, by the way, the same word that's the title of the second book of the Torah, the book of Exodus. Genesis, the beginning. Exodus is the, 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 the word means decease. And, uh, the Mount, on the Mount of Transfiguration that he's making reference to here. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah spoke of Jesus' departure. We may, we may miss that. It's very important to understand that at the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah and Jesus were talking about Exodus, the departure. And it's provocative to me, by the way, that both Moses and Elijah that are there may well be, have an errand to return as the two witnesses in Revelation 11. For a variety of reasons, we hold the view, there's good, good scholars that have different views, 
But the point is we believe those, the two witnesses in Revelation 11 are Moses and Elijah for some very important reasons. Not the least of which is they're here discussing the second coming with Jesus. It's like a staff meeting. And, uh, and some people speculate that Peter, in keeping these things always in remembrance, had in mind his gospel. All these things that you keep in remembrance, because Mark was pulling together for him like a secretary that which we know is the, the gospel of Mark. That's why many think that this may have been a covering letter to Mark's gospel to the, to the residents of Qumran, as those manuscripts mentioned, as I mentioned earlier. But anyway, he continues here, he says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, when we made known unto you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitness of his, witnesses of his majesty. He's making reference that he personally saw the glory of God on the transfiguration. We sometimes see that as some kind of maybe, sort of, I, I, I don't want to be demeaning here, but sort of a parlor trick kind of thing that he, okay, he's all shining and great. No, no, much more. He, he, Peter got an opportunity as an eyewitness seeing the glory of the, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to make another point here that I'm coming to, but understand, he was an eyewitness. And he's going to point out that you have something even better than being an eyewitness. That's kind of wild. Most of us are, boy, I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have seen that. And Peter's going to point out to you, you got something even better. And he's going to get to that in a minute. That, um, that uh, we were uh, the, the power and coming of Lord Jesus Christ, but we're eyewitnesses of his majesty. Key thing. It's important to under, distinguish between the Word of God, which is the Bible, and the Word, Logos, that's Christ. They're both major avenues of God's revelation. And Psalm 19 deals with that. And of course, the opening passage of John deals with that, and Hebrews and so on. But both of these come into focus throughout the remainder of this chapter. That's the big issue here. Just that. The Word of God and the incarnate Word of God. Okay? And a Christian's faith does not rest on clever stories or fables. And by the way, the Greek word there is mythos, which is like myth. These aren't myths. These are not stories or fables, as did the doctrines of the false teachers, which Peter's going to deal with in the next chapter. He's setting the stage for the next chapter. Instead, true faith is founded on historical facts, which eyewitnesses corroborated. Paul hammers away in 1 Corinthians 15 of the resurrection of Christ, and he makes reference to the fact uh, his audience, over 500 people, saw Christ in his resurrected form, and many of them are among you, he said, when he's writing 1 Corinthians 15. And so, uh, it, we're based on uh, historical facts. And uh, now his defense of the second coming of Christ is based on his eyewitness experience on Mount Transfiguration. We sometimes don't link that up. Peter's conviction about the second coming is built on his eyewitness of the glory of God in Matthew 17. And several times already he has, in, this epistle, in the earlier epistle, he spoke of Christ's return. 1 Peter 1.5, a number, number of places. So it's clear, you need to understand, Peter felt that the doctrine of the second coming is of great importance and he wanted his readers to keep that always in mind. It's disturbing to discover how many churches de-emphasize that. Well, we're not really into prophecy here. 
There's a lot of reasons for that, but the point is it shouldn't be. We should be celebrating that. There's a, a, one of the specific crowns of five that are listed in the Bible are for those that love is appearing. Now, Peter's preaching during the days of the early church. He was firmly committed to the doctrine of the second coming. You find that all through Acts 2, 3, and so forth. His first uh, sermon in Acts 2 hammers this. His second sermon in Acts 3 hammers this. In fact, it's a masterpiece. It's fascinating to study his two sermons and contrast the elegance of that organization of those passages with the clumsy bumbling of the Galilean fisherman before, he, uh, when, when before Christ had, uh, was resurrected. Interesting. I sometimes wonder if the transfiguration wasn't a staff meeting because we've got the two witnesses and the Lord getting their instructions. Is it a view of the kingdom in advance? Could very well be. Where was the, you know, everybody has different theories about the transfiguration. Most, of, most people, most scholars think it was Mount Hermon because that's the biggest one up north. I have a suspicion it wasn't. Both Moses and Elijah ended their ministries in the same region near Mount Nebo or sometimes called Pisgah in Deuteronomy 34 and 2 Kings 2. Both ended there and I can't resist the temptation to, 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 to conjecture that perhaps the transfiguration was in the same geography as when they finished. Because their ministries are both interrupted, and those two ministries, Moses and Elijah, are going to be wrapped up in Revelation 11. So I sometimes speculate on that. Anyway, let's move on. Verse 17, For he received from God the Father honor and glory, and there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, saying what? This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And that very phrase echoes in our ears from his baptism in Matthew 3. It shows up in Matthew 3 at the baptism. The same voice says the same thing in Matthew 17 at the transfiguration. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. It's interesting that he was impressed with what he heard as much as what he saw. I think that's interesting. That obviously had its impact on Peter. But here is a key verse that I'm going to dwell on when we finish here in a little bit. We have also, he said, he's an eyewitness, great, but he says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well to take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. He's saying that you've got something that's even more certain than being an eyewitness. I was the eyewitness. You've got something that's even more certain. And you need to understand that. You need to embrace that because it's a foundational piece that we're coming to here. And I've appended a, an analysis of that after I want to finish this thing and then we'll get into that other thing. But Peter has these are great verses here that conclude this first chapter. He says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. What does that mean? There's at least four views, by the way. Private interpretation. This has been interpreted several ways. Some say this means that Scripture should be interpreted only in the context. That is, a prophecy cannot stand alone without other prophecies to aid its understanding. That's classical seminary teaching. I don't believe it. Because Matthew shatters that by quoting all kinds of things that are totally out of context. I think to underscore that. I'm not going to get into all that here. But out of Egypt I've called my son and and, and Ram, it, it goes on and on. So I think that, that can't, that's a good protective uh, position, but there's many places that the Holy Spirit 
deliberately does a, 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 a transfer of context. Scripture should not be interpreted according to one's own individual liking. Well, I can't quarrel with that, but is that what this means? Maybe. Maybe it means something else. Scripture cannot be correctly interpreted without the Holy Spirit. No contest. Absolutely true. But there's a fourth view that what this really means is that the prophecies did not originate with the prophets themselves. It has, it, the allusion here is to the origin of it. And this turns out to be probably the most defendable pers perspective on this thing. The word is epileseos, interpretation, which actually means the unloose, unloosing, and genetai, which means come about. They, those terms in the Greek favor the fourth view. The scriptures did not stem merely from the prophets themselves. Their writings came from God, is what he's trying to say. And verse 20 then speaks not of interpretation, actually, but of revelation, of the unloosing. It's not any private unloosing. The source of the scriptures. It, it's, allude, it's, a, it's a validation of the source more than the reception of it. Uh, okay. There is an integrity of design, and each part takes relevance as it fits into the whole counsel of God. That's the thing you want to remember, Acts 20, verse 27. It's the whole, it should fit into the whole package. That's your test. Avoid one verse theology. And as Acts says also in Acts 15, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. His tapestry of the Word of God from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is as elegant design, and everything fits. And you understand it when you see how it fits. And then the big wrap-up, for a prophecy came not in the old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Key phrase here. Uh, born along, carried along. The term is actually a sailing term. Luke uses this word in referring to a sailing vessel carried along by the wind. That's what it really, they were moved in that sense. So the authors of Scripture wrote their prophecies. They were impelled or borne along with God's Spirit. What they wrote was thus inspired by God. In fact, God breathed is the term that Paul uses in 2 Timothy 3. The Scripture's human authors were controlled by the divine author, the Holy Spirit. But they were consciously involved in the process. They were not taking dictation nor writing in a state of ecstasy. Actually, the Torah, there's evidence that it was given to them letter by letter, incidentally. But anyway, no wonder believers have a word of prophecy which is certain. They are the very words of God himself. That's the truth. We always think of that in the Ten Commandments, written by his finger in stone. No, same thing you've got in your lap. It just happens to be a translation into a language you, you're more comfortable with. But I want to measure this. Peter says that you have the more certain word of prophecy. How certain is it? You know, how, how sure can you be? You have the more sure word of prophecy. What does that mean? Lord Kelvin, um, famous scientist, William Thompson, that's his actual name, he says, until we can measure a thing, we really know very little about it. If you're talking about optics or acoustics, until you can make measurements, it turns out you don't really know what you're talking about. And this, that may apply here. I think it's urgent that every biblical believer in today's society needs to understand what we now have discovered about the nature of time. Time is an elusive concept 
that's been debated all through the centuries. We have the benefit of some great discoveries in 20th century science. Let me give you an example of that. And I'll talk about gravitation. There, there are atomic clocks located at the National Institute of Standards and Technology at Boulder, Colorado, and an identical one virtually in, at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, England. These clocks are incredibly accurate. They are accurate to better than one second per million years. And uh, that becomes of the, it exploits the nature of the, re, uh, the resonance of a cesium atom to get that precision. What reason I'm bringing this up, it's interesting that the one at Boulder every year ends up being five millionths of a second faster than the identical clock at Greenwich. And the question I love to give a class is, okay, which of these are correct? And I think most of you are ahead of me. You know, they both are exactly correct. The clocks are not wrong. Time is different at those two locations. At Boulder, Colorado, the clock is at 5,400 feet out. Almost, it's a, it's a mile up. At Greenwich, England, it's 80 feet up over sea level. It's the difference in altitude, which is a difference of gravity, which means time goes at a different speed. Atomic clock, if there's an atomic clock here on the platform and I raise it one meter, it speeds up by one part in 10 to the 16th. Tiny, tiny bit, but it's predictable and it's measurable. They actually did this. They, they took aircraft and ran them around the world back in 71. One went eastward and one went westward. And they gained or lost exactly what Einstein's theory of relativity would have predict, did predict. But the one that's most fun to talk, explore, any text in physics that deals with this topic, typically will talk about two imaginary astronauts. They're both, they're hypothetical. They're born at the same instant, okay? And we're going to send them to the nearest star. We're going to send one of them to the nearest star, leave the other one here on the Earth. If you look at the night sky, there is a star called Alpha Centauri that's the one that's closest to us in the universe. It happens to be four and a half light years away. Light, a light year is a, me a measure of distance. It's how far light will travel in one year. That star happens to be four and a half light years away. What you're looking at started its trek towards you four and a half years ago. Now we're going to send this imaginary astronaut at to that star and back at half the speed of light. Let's imagine we could do that. Okay, so it's four and a half years, so it's going to take nine years to get there at half the speed of light. It'll take nine years to get back. Okay, on our clock here on the earth, that'll take 18 years to have them to go there and then get back. That's on our clock here on earth, the, the clock is the wristwatch of his twin brother. Okay, but his clock has to be adjusted by Einstein's theory of relativity with what's called the Lorentz transformation. And it turns out when he gets back, he's going to be two years and five months younger. Now, if that doesn't bother you, you weren't listening carefully. See, time is not uh, uniform. It's a physical property that changes. Let's give you a better example. Let's imagine we could send him at almost the speed of light, say 99.99% of speed. You plug that into the Lorentz transfer, it, 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 on our clock, it would then take him nine years to do the round trip, but on his clock, it only would go in 33 days. He would experience 33 days time. When he got bound here, he'd discover we had advanced nine years, in fact. Einstein's theory of relativity, that length, mass, and velocity is relative, that was a special theory, but his general theory of relativity in 1915, there's no distinction between time and space. A physicist will not speak of time or space separately. He'll always speak of space-time because they're intimately related. And his theory then has been confirmed 14 different ways to 19 decimals 
We live in a four dimension, not three dimensions, four dimensional continuum. That's what we mean by space time. Time is not uniform. It's a physical property. It varies with mass, acceleration, and gravity. And I emphasize this in many of our classes because I think once you understand this, all kinds of problems go away to the biblical believer as he understands this. You and I exist in more than three dimensions. Paul lists four of them in Ephesians 3 verse 18. Current scientific understanding is that we apparently live in ten dimensions. Okay? But let me go at it another way. We think of time as linear. When we're in school, the teacher wrote a line on the blackboard from left to right. Beginning and the end was of something, of a person's life or empire or what have you. Because of that experience, most of us think of eternity as simply a line that starts at infinity over here on the left and goes to infinity on the right. We think of eternity as having lots of time. That makes wonderful poetry. It makes very, it's very poor physics. Is God subject to the restrictions of mass, acceleration, or gravity? Hardly. Of course not. So he's not somebody with lots of time. He's someone that's outside of the restrictions of the dimensionality of time. And this uniqueness is his personal imprint. That's how he authenticates his, his, his documentation. That's what Isaiah means when he says, Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. Since God has the technology to create in the first place, he has the technology to authenticate his message by uh, he authenticates it by uh, uh, demonstrating that his message originated from outside time. And that's what Isaiah means when he says, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things that are not yet done. See, if you think of this, take this line that I just had on the screen and imagine it's coming out of the screen toward you, if you can visualize that here with my, my, uh, my uh, sketch. You and I are in this line of time. At the moment where we are, it's called the present Behind us is a memory we call the past. In front of us is a hope that we call the future. To someone who's outside time, he can see the past, the present, and future simultaneously. And that's what, it's God alone. And he exploits that unique characteristic by writing the future before it happens. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Peter. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.